So he gives thanks, and I hope you do that every time you sit down at your dinner table, or wherever it may be, in a McDonald's or restaurant. I hope you're not ashamed of Christ to bow and give a, a word of thanksgiving. Hogs and dogs don't, but you ought to. And I might add that he thanks God. He doesn't just bless the food. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke says that he looked up to heaven reminding people that the source of all that God gives us are from his hand. It's a good reminder to us. Instead of complaining about what we do not have, we ought to be giving thanks for what we do have. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, The God of the Impossible. We began to look yesterday at the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John, the longest chapter in this book. Pastor Carl introduced us to the first of three vignettes that are outlined in the first 15 verses, as John records the feeding of the 5,000. We saw in the first vignette the multitude that came. As we unveiled the second vignette, the miracle that was performed, Pastor Carl begins reading from verse 10. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues. Now we saw the first Passover where he cleans the temple. Remember, he cleanses it of all of its, uh, its abuses. And it was in that context he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And he relates the temple to his own body, to his own death. When we come to the third Passover that he's going to mention, it will take place on the day that he's crucified. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ will expire the exact hour when those rabbis, when those priests would be there in the temple slitting the necks of those innocent lambs. He would die on that very hour as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this Passover, he's going to do a miracle and he's going to give us the meaning of the miracle in depth with this discourse that follows. And he's going to relate this Passover to himself. Just as they would eat the unliving bread, he was indeed the bread of life. And so Jesus, verse 5, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a great multitude was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? Now the apostle John does not notice through the other three gospels that the disciples again had come to a place, a deserted place, to be alone. Nor does he tell us that while the disciples had been out all day preaching and healing, Jesus had been doing the same all day long. And so they, they got there, but their time spent alone was very short because the Lord looks up and here comes this multitude. Now John sometimes fills in details that the other gospels don't give us. And sometimes the other Gospels give us details that John doesn't write about because they had been published for so long by the time he writes. Mark 6 tells us that the crowd had literally run around the lake and they'd come to this place where Jesus was meeting with his disciples. In fact, all three Gospels tell us that the disciples were hungry. They hadn't eaten. The Lord hadn't eaten himself. I'm sure he was hungry but he never did a miracle to satisfy himself. And so we read in Matthew's account, and when it was evening, the disciples came to him saying, the place is desolate and the time is already past. It's the end of the day. 
So send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So Jesus taught all that day. The disciples taught all that day. The late afternoon comes. The multitude is there when they were going to spend some time alone. He continues to teach and heal right until the time it's dark and the crowd's hungry. What's the disciples' solution? The solution to their problem is to get rid of the problem. Just send them home. Let them fend for themselves. But Jesus knew these were hungry people, and going without a meal might cause some to faint. They needed sustenance. Matthew tells us it was evening. Mark says it was already quite late. I like the way Luke puts it. He says the day began to decline. So the Lord's heart goes out to these people in compassion. Now, we typically call this the miracle of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000. But I might note here that Matthew's account tells us, and there were about 5,000 men aside from women and children. That's a big group. If on average there's one woman for every man with two kids, maybe we should call this the miracle of the 20,000 because he's feeding tens of thousands of people here, probably about 20,000. Some put it as high as 30,000. And I'm sure the kids are hungry. They're tired, maybe irritable. And so the disciples say, just send them home and let them fend for themselves. But that's not the Lord's answer. So he signals out Philip. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread that these may eat? And of course, in one sense, Philip might be the natural person to ask because he's a resident of a nearby town from here. They're at Bethsaida. And the problem, of course, to feed such a vast crowd is immense. And so Philip is tested by the Lord. Where are we to buy bread that these may eat? No merchant in town would have enough food on stock to, be even, to begin to make a dent in this crowd. But this is not a problem for the omniscient God. And he was saying this, the Bible says, verse 6, to test him. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. This was a test for Philip, and as we will see, for the rest of the disciples as well, because he wants to develop Philip in their faith, faith that still needed development. Understand that whenever God wants to develop a man, he tests a man. And there are certain kinds of tests for certain kinds of people. You say, well, pastor, I seem to be getting the same test over and over and over again. Well, James tells us one of the reasons that happens is because we haven't always learned from the test. And so it repeats itself. He says, not if, but when you encounter various trials, we're to consider it joy. Knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance. And then he says, and let, this is a choice we make, and let endurance have its perfect result. That's why James says we're to pray for wisdom. We use that verse all the time in James 1.4, and it's a decent application. Any of us lack wisdom, let us ask of God. That's a legitimate application. But go back to the original context. He's saying when you're going through a test, when you're going through a trial of life, that is the time to step back and ask God for wisdom. What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to accomplish in my life through this test? And so he asks Philip a question, not to get advice from him. He's the omniscient God, not to get information from him, but to test him, to help Philip learn something about himself because he knew it was an all man. He wants Philip to understand how his faith is deficient. He's testing his faith, and as you know, he failed the test. So rather than realizing that he was in the presence of almighty, omnipotent God, 
Philip takes it down to a human level. And he tries to solve the problem with simply human resources. Notice verse 7. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. He counts the cost by doing some mental arithmetic. And I suspect there was probably 200 denarii there in the treasury bag that Judas held. Uh, Matthew chapter 20 tells us in verse 1 that a day's wage for the common laborer was a denarii. And so Philip basically estimated that it would take two-thirds of a year of a hard-working man to be able to feed this man just to give him a, what we might call a free sample, just to give him a little tidbit to eat. Uh, the NIV paraphrases it as eight months' wages. But even that would not be enough to satisfy their hunger. You know, it's kind of like going through Sam's and you're looking for the free samples. You work those tables too. I've seen you in there, all right? <laughs> Just a tasted best. That's all. That's all. And so he calculates it. It's a good answer, but it's a bad answer. It's a good answer in that it's accurate, but it's a bad answer in that it leaves Jesus Christ out of the equation. He left God out of his calculation. Have you ever been guilty of that? I know I have. Lest we get too smug and rag on Philip too much. Very often when we look at a problem, we look at it simply from a human point of view. Or maybe we think about how we can throw money at it and solve the problem. And we leave God out of the equation. So here's Philip. His test is being tested. His faith is being tested, and he needs to look to an omnipotent God to find an answer. Little boy was trying to push over a heavy rock. He was grinding and straining and heaving and sighing, and he just couldn't make it move. And he said, Daddy, I can't move it. With rather a whimsical smile on his face, his dad said, Well, are you using all of your strength? He said, I'm using all of my strength. He said, No, you're not. Because you haven't asked me to help you. I'm your daddy, and your strength is my strength, and my strength is your strength. Hey, that's the message that runs through Holy Scripture. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If God wants me to do something, I can do it. I spoke with a gentleman yesterday, and he said, my marriage is hopeless. We can't get along, my wife and I. We've tried and tried and tried. They were Christian people. I said, you can get along. Your marriage can be healed. It can be rescued. The question is, will you allow God Almighty to strengthen you? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This was God's will. He said, feed them. And if they would look to the Lord in his strength, in his resources, God would have done it. And so here's Philip. He does some mental calculations, and he says it's an impossibility. So Simon Peter's brother Andrew steps up to the plate and he looks at the impossibility of the situation. He's not quite sure how to solve the problem. Notice verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five bar barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So while Philip is calculating what cannot happen, Andrew, he's trying to figure out a solution as to what can happen. He's surveying the crowd. He's looking around. The only food he can find is one little lad with his little leftover lunch. And he notes here, John, that he has five loaves of barley bread. Only John brings out that it's barley, and that's significant. Because barley bread is the cheapest, the coarsest, and the poorest 
of all grains. People in the first century very often used it to feed their animals. Only the very poor would typically use it to make bread. And please understand, these loaves are not like the big commercial loaves you buy in the supermarket. The word that's used here is used to describe a small life. Typical first century loaf would be like a half a hamburger bun. And here, the, the word for fish could be translated a tidbit. We might translate it, paraphrase it, a sardine. He's got five little pieces of bread and a couple of sardines, which they would love to pickle and eat on that bread. And so true to his character... Andrew brings the boy to Jesus. By the way, there's not a whole lot written about Andrew in the Gospels. But every time you find Andrew in the New Testament, he's bringing someone to Jesus Christ. Remember, in chapter 1, he came to his brother Simon Peter, and he says, we have found the Messiah, and he brings him to Christ. When we come to chapter 12, we will see him bringing Greeks to the Lord Jesus, which is very significant for a Jew to bring a Gentile to the Savior. And here he is, this man who very often lived in the shadow of his brother's name, often referred to as Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, but he's really an apostle in his own right. He's a man who sought to solve problems, and he's very much of a people person. And so he's optimistic, but his optimism is limited to human resources. And so like Philip, he does the mental arithmetic. He concludes that this one little leftover lunch is not enough to feed this crowd. You say, well, they're stating the obvious. Exactly. That's what they're trying to do. Remember, the disciples as a whole concluded, Lord, the way to solve the problem is to get rid of the problem. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And I think what Andrew and Philip are basically trying to do is convince the Lord that the consensus, the committee opinion of these disciples was the correct one. Philip says, look, there's not enough money to feed this crowd. Andrew says there's not enough food. So send them home, Lord. Let them care for themselves. I know that's the consensus because that's what the other gospels tell me. You, Jesus said, Luke 9, 9 13, you give them something to eat. Ye, the old King James says, tells you in English it's a plural. You, disciples, give them something to eat. And then they respond with the first person plural pronoun. We have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. It's just like Philip and Andrew said. We don't have enough money to go buy food and all we've got is a few pieces of bread and a couple fish. So the scene is set for a miracle. That's the first vignette. The multitude that came. Now, consider with me also the miracle that happened. The miracle that happened. Jesus said, verse 10, have the people sit down now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus takes charge by instructing the disciples to tell the people to sit down. Mark emphasizes that it's done in companies of hundreds and fifties, probably according to the different towns they came from. In either case, it was done in an orderly fashion because as the apostle tells us, God is not a God of confusion, but of order. Now, John tells us there was much grass there. Mark, in his account, tells us it was green grass. And as you might expect, because it's March, April, it's the Passover season of the year, it's that time when, when the people of God would go and, and celebrate the Passover, and it, the hot sun had not yet come to burn it all out and turn it brown. Now, notice it says, have the people sit down. 
the people. If you're using the old King James, it says have the men. And that's a good translation there. But the Greek word is anthropos. And the word anthropos, we get our word anthropology from it, refers to men and women alike. And so the New American Standard quite precisely brings out the nuance of the two words. He says, have all the people sit down, and so the men. And then he uses a Greek word that refers to men in deference to women, in deference to children. The men were 5,000 in number, precisely what we read in Matthew's account. Matthew spells it out. John highlights it by the words that he uses. So it's a big crowd. Now watch what happens beginning in verse 11. Jesus, therefore, took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also the fish, as much as they wanted. So he gives thanks, and I hope you do that every time you sit down at your dinner table or wherever it may be, in a McDonald's or restaurant. I hope you're not ashamed of Christ to bow and give a, a word of thanksgiving. Hogs and dogs don't, but you ought to. And I might add that he thanks God. He doesn't just bless the food. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke says that he looked up to heaven reminding people that the source of all that God gives us are from his hand. It's a good reminder to us. Instead of complaining about what we do not have, we ought to be giving thanks for what we do have. You know, as I read this over this week and thought about it, I was trying to consider what was going on in the minds of these disciples. Here's the Lord. He's saying, oh, Heavenly Father, bless this food that we're about to receive. Feed these 20,000 people with it. And Philip and Andrew are looking around with the other disciples. What are you talking about? There's just a little bit here. What are you giving thanks for? It reminds me of George Mueller, a great man of faith who ran orphanages in the United Kingdom during the 19th century. At one time, he had as many as 10,000 children in his orphanages. You ought to read biographies of great men and women of God. They will challenge you in your faith. And as I read his biography, I remember on one occasion when he asked a little boy, as he would ask different children each day to pray and to give thanks for the food, and the little boy said, for what? Everybody knew the cupboards were empty and there was no food in the place. So Mueller bowed his head and he said, Father, I thank you that you've been faithful, that you've met the needs that we have had time and time and time again, and so we thank you for this food. And no sooner had he said amen, there was a knock on the door. And a bread truck had broken down right in front of the orphanage. And in came a man with all these loaves of bread. And it wasn't five minutes later, a milk truck came up. And this man said, God woke me up last night at 3 o'clock. I couldn't sleep. I didn't want to do it. But I realized that I need to give you all the milk that's in my truck. And God supplied. And so here's the disciples. They watched their Lord giving thanks and notice it says he distributed to those who were seated. The distribution of the bread, as the other Gospels indicate, went from his hands to the disciples' hands to the multitudes. That's very important. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they needed. Far beyond the little tidbit that a few hundred denarii could supply, the people ate until they were full and they were satisfied and there was much left over. Now, liberal theologians who cannot accept the miracles of the Bible will always try to explain them away, 
Some have argued that ahead of time, Jesus Christ with his disciples prearranged the miracle, that there was a cave behind them, and that the disciples were in there, and Jesus had his flowing robes and handed the guys, they handed him the baskets, and out they came. Listen, that's ridiculous. Not to mention, just logically, where would you get that much food to feed 20,000 people? Not to mention, this is a hungry crowd. You would have smelt that bread. You would have smelt that fish. Another liberal theologian, William Barclay, why evangelicals buy his books left and right are beyond me. He's dead now. He died in 1978. But he denied most of the miracles in the Gospels. And he said, well, that little boy gave his lunch and he shamed the crowd into opening up their lunch boxes and it was all shared about. Sheer nonsense. When you read the context of what's happened, there's nothing hidden here. Not to mention the people who recognize a miracle has taken place. They want to make him king. If this was just some mass psychological trick, the crowd never would have responded in the way they did. No, God said it, I believe it. That settles it in my mind. You know, mathematically, 200 denarii, five loaves, and two sardines can't feed 20,000 people. And may I say, had we assigned a committee to the problem, they would have concluded it's impossible. But what we need are the mathematics of a miracle. Five loaves plus two fishes plus the Lord God can mean anything. Whatever he wants it to mean. God put the key in the front door. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything written in the Bible. That's why the devil is spending all of his time in this generation to attack Genesis 1-1 through the false doctrine of evolution. Verse 12. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. The Lord lavishly supplied and nothing was lost. That's good stewardship, but far more than good stewardship is involved in this miracle. Verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. 20,000 people had been fed, 12 baskets were filled. And again, all Gospels draw the attention to that number. Every disciple had a basket full of leftovers. The Lord was trying to imprint into their psyche, into their soul, what he could do if they would put their faith in him, that he is the God of the impossible. And so there's the multitude that came. There's the miracle that happened. Finally, I want us to consider the monarchy that was refused. Notice verse 14. When, therefore, the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is of a truth. The prophet who is to come into the world. The people see this sign and they're absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ is the expected prophet to come into the world that Moses wrote about. Jot down in the margin again, Deuteronomy 18, 15. Next to verse 14. Deuteronomy 18, 15. Then the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet, said Moses, speaking prophetically. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen, you shall listen to him. And then he said in verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. command him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, 
I myself will require it of him. Now, the Old Testament, if you remember, predicted that the Messiah, when he came, would fill three offices. The office of prophet, priest, and king. And so Moses wrote of a prophet whom, by the way, fit the Lord Jesus perfectly. You say, that's just your understanding of the verse. No, that's what the apostles say in Acts 3. When they get up, Peter, on the second sermon that he gives after Pentecost, he quotes Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 that we just read, saying that the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. Jesus was a prophet. He was the prophet. He was the prophet of prophets. Now, far more than a prophet, he's the son of God. He's God in human flesh. He's God incarnate. But he, nonetheless, is the prophet that Moses had predicted. And that's why the Lord said, whatever he shall speak in my name, I'll require it of you. Why? Because the Bible says there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So what you do with Christ, God will require it of you. He will determine what he will do with you. Jesus, verse 15, Therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now, the people's assessment of what Moses wrote was correct. Jesus was indeed the prophet. But what they wanted him to do was wrong. Now, you can understand, if he's the prophet, then he's the king, he is the priest. And if he's to be like Moses, then he'll have some kind of kingly role. What did Moses do? Moses was used of God to deliver the children of Israel out of the oppression of Egypt. And so he came with great signs and wonders and miracles in order to authenticate to those children of Israel that he was God's man. And so they assume the same of Christ. He's got all the credentials. We've seen him do miracles all day. He just fed thousands of people. He's the prophet. Let's make him king so he can free us from the oppression of Rome. After all, he'd been preaching about the kingdom of God, Luke 9, 11 tells us, all day long. But they totally missed his message. Yes, he's the king, but not the kind of king they wanted him to be. Now, his concept of a kingdom is far different from theirs. Theirs was secular. Theirs was material. His is spiritual. He told Nicodemus, you must be born a second time in order to enter the kingdom of God. And he told him that this new birth and entrance into the kingdom would come through his own death and resurrection. And so they want a prophet to free them from Roman oppression but he has another kind of kingdom. Before Pilate, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Jesus knew that his kingdom was not of this world that he would not come and take them by siege warfare, that his kingdom would be established by his own death and resurrection. He was not going to Jerusalem to wield the spear and to bring the judgment. He was going to Jerusalem to take the spear and to bear the judgment that our sin deserves. And so the prospect of becoming a king as the multitudes wanted him was just another temptation, as we saw, came from the evil one in Matthew 4. It's rather ironic. This one, who came as king, who came to offer a kingdom to man, the king of kings, they missed it because of their warped understanding of the kingdom. They just wanted to use 
Christ. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 015. Remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.